Our Heavenly Father, as we come now to the preaching of your word, grant us your Holy Spirit to open our minds and hearts to receive this word from you and work in us what is pleasing to you. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you'll please open your Bibles again to our sermon text, Romans uh, 14, verses 1 through 12. It's Pew Bibles, page 948, and we did uh, read the text earlier, and we'll be reading it again as we work through it. So I won't read it again in full now at the beginning of the sermon. So Romans 14, 1 through 12. When a person embraces Christ, it is absolutely life-changing. To realize that you have had your sins forgiven and that you have received the gift of eternal life, dwelling with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, this brings a profound and lasting joy. But then that mountaintop experience of conversion does tend to fade as real life goes on and you seek to follow Christ in every area of life. And as you do, you also have to get along with other Christians and you start to realize you may have different ideas about what it means to follow Christ in every area of life. Paul has dedicated most of this letter to laying out that life-transforming message of the gospel. But now he must address a problem that is causing division in the church. And that is different convictions on non-essential matters. Sometimes called disputable matters or matters of conscience. Right up front, we should distinguish the division here in Rome from what was going on in Galatia. For Paul deals with this problem very differently from that one. In Galatia, there were some claiming that circumcision was necessary for salvation. And Paul sharply disagrees with them. He says they are preaching a different gospel, a gospel which cannot save. And he has no toleration for divergence which strikes at the heart of the gospel. However, the differences here in Rome are secondary. They are non-essential. They are not concerned with matters of salvation, but rather matters of Christian living. And yet they are still causing a division in the church, and so they must be dealt with. Therefore, Paul deals with this matter very differently. Well, Paul doesn't shrink from saying which side of the debate he believes is the correct one. He does not pressure the other side to change their beliefs and their practices immediately. Rather, he insists that believers should welcome one another and not judge or despise those brothers or sisters who have different convictions on these non-essential matters. This entire passage is all about how the church must be bound together by love and mutual acceptance, despite differing convictions on how to best please God in the Christian life. As we saw in our scripture reading earlier, Paul will continue addressing this topic through most of chapter 
15. And it will take us three sermons to cover the entire section. The main theme of the first part that we're looking at this morning, just going through verse 12, is this. Stop condemning one another, but rather welcome one another. And the theological foundation is this, that we are all servants of Christ. And so we have no right to condemn our fellow servants because our master approves of them. Our specific matters dividing the church in Paul's day, the specific matters were abstaining from meat and celebrating Jewish holidays. These are unlikely to cause division in the church today. There are other issues of Christian living that divide Christians today. We'll consider some of those as we work through the text this morning. But the application for us will be the same. When you encounter fellow believers who have different convictions, you are called not to condemn or despise them, but to warmly receive them. So we'll look at our passage under three headings this morning. First, welcome one another in the church. Second, live to Christ and die to Christ. And third, live in light of the coming judgment. So first, welcome one another in the church. Reading in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. You can see the overall theme of this entire section by noting that Paul opens it with the command to welcome the weak in faith in verse 1. And then in chapter 15, verse 7, he closes the section by repeating the same command. They're writing... Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So there's no doubt the overall theme of this whole section is to welcome one another in the church. That's a welcome. It's more than just to tolerate others while treating them all the while as second-class citizens. Rather, they are to be treated as full brothers and sisters in Christ. But by calling some weak, Paul is putting labels on these two factions that had developed and were dividing the church in Rome. And he begins by addressing those, that faction that he will later label as the strong. He speaks to them first, most likely because they were the majority in Rome. But first we must ask, what does Paul mean when he calls some weak in faith? As I said before, this is not a matter of the gospel or of salvation. He is not saying that they are not strongly trusting in Christ for their salvation. It is not their faith directly in Christ that is weak. However, they are weak concerning certain implications of their faith in Christ. They are not fully convinced that they have been set free from the Mosaic law and other Jewish traditions. And so they continue to keep the law and these traditions. Paul is saying that their inability to draw these connections, to live out their implications of their faith in Christ, is a weakness. And that ideally, they would grow into a stronger faith. However, the overall message of this passage is not the weak must become strong, but rather the weak and the strong must get along. And so Paul says, welcome the weak. 
but not in order to quarrel over opinions. You might imagine some might be willing to welcome them in only in order to enter into a debate with them. And Paul's saying that's not the point at all. Welcome them in not for a debate and to quarrel with them. Don't welcome them in in order that you can convince them to your point of view. Welcome them in that you might have fellowship with them. Welcome them in that you might build them up. Welcome them in that you might worship the Lord together. In verse 2, we get a clearer sense of who the weak are as Paul gives the first example of what exactly are these disputed matters. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now here I should note that vegetables would include grains and bread, similar to a modern vegetarian diet. And we won't get to it this morning, but Paul also mentioned drinking wine in verses 17 and 21. So it's possible the weak were also abstaining from wine as well. So we know the weak abstain from eating meat, probably also from drinking wine. But can we identify them even more precisely? I think so. It's almost certain that they were Jewish Christians who refrained from certain foods and observed certain feast days out of this abiding loyalty to the Mosaic Law. Although Paul clearly taught that the Mosaic Law was no longer binding on the believer in Christ, these Jewish believers had not yet fully taken this to heart. And so they continued to follow several Jewish practices. They believed in Christ. They knew that they were saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they held on to the law and Jewish traditions. And one piece of evidence for this is that Paul uses the Jewish term unclean to describe the attitude of the weak towards certain foods. And although Paul says no food is unclean in itself, he says it is unclean toward those who think it is unclean. Now, scrupulous Jews who could not be sure that the meat had been slaughtered in a kosher way would simply avoid eating all meat. Now, this would be particularly true after the shakeup of Emperor Claudius's expelling the Jews from Rome, which would have interrupted any existing kosher meat markets. Similarly, it would have made sense to avoid wine since they could not be sure it had not been mixed with wine that had been offered as a libation to an idol. So you can understand why some Jewish believers would still cling to these practices, while others coming from a Gentile background and understanding that they are free from the Mosaic law would feel no compulsion to adopt these practices. Let's consider what would be some examples of comparable disputed matters in the church today. Let me begin by listing off a few that have been dividing lines between some Christians, but that, as far as I know, are not likely to cause any division in our congregation. First, you have some Christians who believe they should never attend a theater or, in more modern times, would never go to the movies or would never watch TV. Now, in all these categories, the point is not that the Bible has nothing to say regarding wisdom in partaking in a certain activity, but that the weaker brother is the one who believes it is necessary to completely abstain from an activity in order to be faithful to Christ. Whereas the stronger brother will use biblical wisdom to discern in what circumstances they might 
watch a movie or watch TV. A second disputed matter would be fashion. Some Christians think all makeup is worldly, that any sort of clothing that is not plain or traditional is attention-seeking and thus is feeding a person's pride. And this could also be applied to hairstyles. Any hairstyle that's not the most plain possible, again, attention-seeking, prideful. A third disputed matter, dancing. Many Christian universities still require their students to promise not to dance in their student conduct pledges. Now, getting to disputed matters that are more likely to cause division within our congregation. And here I'm not saying that these are major problems, but simply I'm aware that people have differing convictions on these matters. And that's okay. That's the whole point of this sermon, that people have different convictions, but we can still get along and welcome one another and love one another. Uh, While we might not draw a hard line against movies and TVs altogether, different families might have different standards of strictness, especially concerning what we allow our children to watch. We could say similar things about what kind of music is appropriate to listen to. In seminary, I knew a student who was well-known in the Christian hip-hop scene. And I've known Christians who will listen to just about any genre except rap music. And we have the use of tobacco and alcohol. Now, of course, the Bible has plenty to say about not misusing alcohol. And we know tobacco can be harmful to your health. But many Christians believe it is required to abstain rather than to use these things with wisdom and moderation. Next, we have Sabbath keeping. Our pastors and elders believe and teach that we are to keep Sunday as the Christian Sabbath, devoting the whole day to the worship of God and resting from work except for works of necessity and mercy. But even within this basic framework, there are those who have more or less strict interpretations of what it looks like to keep the Lord's Day holy. Another controversial subject would be our children's education. We have public schools, private schools, and homeschooling. And then even within private and homeschooling, there are different educational philosophies. And believers at times can have very strong convictions on the right way to educate a child. I think that's a pretty good list. I'm sure I'm missing something. And I know I get a little uncomfortable just thinking about all these things and how they could divide us. But the point of this whole passage is not to let different convictions on these matters cause division. Let's continue to verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed them. Paul opened in verse 1 by urging the strong to welcome the weak. Here in verse 3, we see that's Recrimination can go both ways, but it is slightly different in each direction. The temptation for the one who eats is to despise, that is to think less of the one who abstains. In other words, the strong think the weak are just that, that they're weak. They look down upon them saying, when will you grow up? When will you be strong like us? 
But in turn, the one who abstains passes judgment on the one who eats. According to his standards, the one who eats has sinned against God. Now, Paul says this is not the case. Rather, God has welcomed him. God has allowed him to eat this meat. Then he builds on this case in verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. This verse begins to lay out the key theological argument that Paul will make in this passage. Now, at first, Paul is speaking about a master and a servant in general as an illustration, but then he shifts and he makes clear that he has a particular master and servant in mind. Christ is the master and Lord of all believers, and we are his servants. And a servant is not evaluated by his fellow servants, but by his own master. If Christ has welcomed your brother or sister, then you must welcome him as well. To put yourself in the master's place, therefore, is to seize Christ's position for yourself, and then to make a different judgment than Christ himself has already made considering your brother's. And sisters. But of course, you see how ridiculous it is to condemn the brother or sister that Christ has already judged to be acceptable. No, rather, we must welcome one another, for Christ has welcomed your brothers and sisters. This brings us then to part two live to Christ and die to Christ. Reading then verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Here we have a second example of a disputed matter in Rome. The weaker brother sets a higher value on certain days, again likely stemming either directly from Mosaic law or from other Jewish traditions. Perhaps they were celebrating Jewish festivals like Passover or Pentecost. Or maybe they were keeping weekly days of prayer and fasting, according to Jewish tradition. And Paul doesn't endorse this practice, but simply says, whatever you believe, you should be fully convinced of it, so that you can truly practice these things and do them for the Lord. So he continues in verse 6, The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Whatever side of the disputed matter you fall on, you are seeking to honor the Lord, and that's the key to living the Christian life. As Paul wrote back at the beginning of chapter 12, we are to be presenting ourselves as living sacrifices to God. So whether you eat meat or only vegetables, before you sit down for your meal, you pray and you give thanks to God for his provision. And so you honor God with your meal, whatever is on your plate. Just as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. And he broadens out the perspective from just honoring God at the table to all of life in verses 7 and 8. For none of us lives to himself, 
and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. A great contrast here is between living to or for ourselves. That is, for our own benefit, seeking our own interests, and living and dying to the Lord. That is, seeking after what gives Him glory. And so he's saying that our entire lives are the Lord's. We live for the Lord as long as we live, until we die, and even then we die for the Lord. Everything we do, we do for the Lord and for His glory. And whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord, and all things are determined by Him, for He is sovereign over all things, including the day of our death. And even our death has a purpose in God's great plan to bring himself glory. Then surprisingly, he goes on and he applies this principle to the Lord Jesus Christ himself in verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Even Jesus Christ died and lived in service to the Father. But what he accomplished with this is truly amazing. Christ died on the cross and rose again to make himself Lord of both living and the dead. We must be careful to understand exactly what Paul is and is not saying here. He's not denying that Christ was already Lord by virtue of being the eternal Son of God before he accomplished his redemptive mission on earth. However, he is affirming that by dying and rising again, he now becomes Lord in a new way over his people. By actually passing through death and rising to new life, he has conquered death and wields power over death and life, not only as the eternal Son of God, but now as the ascended and ruling God who became man. Paul makes a similar statement in 2 Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The point of this all is that Christ is both an example of one who dedicated his whole life to living for his Father, an example to be followed, but he is also now the Lord for whom we now live our entire lives. Verse 9 is also a bridge for this third and final section of the passage. Live in light of the coming judgment. This section opens in verse 10 with a strong rebuke, again directed towards both sides of this division. First of the week, brother or sister Paul says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Who are you to usurp the place of the master and judge? But he goes on also rebuking the strong brother or sister. Or you, why do you despise your brother? Why do you look down upon those who are weaker in faith? In both of these rebukes, Paul is being very direct. Who are you to judge or despise another? Who is your brother? 
and whom you ought to be welcoming as a beloved brother in the Lord. Then he really turns the tables by setting our sights on God's judgment on us all at the end of verse 10. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. In these final verses, Paul is reminding us who we are. Not only that we are not the judge, but that God will sit on the judgment seat on the last day. And we will stand before him to be judged. In judging or despising our brothers, we have usurped God's place for ourselves. When we should have been humbling ourselves to receive his judgment. Verse 11, Paul is quoting Isaiah 45, 23. It's the same verse he also alludes to in that well-known passage from Philippians chapter 2 about the humiliation and then the exaltation of our Lord. Now, one question that may arise as we read this passage is, who exactly will be the judge on the last day? Is it God the Father or his Son, Jesus Christ? Here in Romans 14.10, Paul speaks of the judgment seat of God, that is the Father. But in 2 Corinthians 5.10, he writes about the judgment seat of Christ. We glean clarity in Acts 17.31, where we read, He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. In other words, God the Father has appointed Christ to execute judgment on his behalf. Next, we might ask, what will this final judgment look like for a believer? Well, the good news is that if you are trusting in Christ, he has borne the penalty for all your sins on the cross. He has borne all the wrath of God, which you deserve for all your sins. He bore that for you on the cross. And he has also clothed you with his own righteousness. And so on judgment day, he will declare you righteous in his sight. And of course, that will also be the verdict for all your brothers and sisters in Christ as well. That is the good news. But notwithstanding that good news, we must also notice that the thrust of these verses in Romans 14, it's not primarily to comfort us about the vindication the believer will certainly receive on Judgment Day. But the thrust here is to warn us to live in light of that coming day. As verse 12 says, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And so Paul is challenging you, even though it will be a day of vindication, he is challenging you to think about what will that account consist of. It's true your guilt will be taken away by Christ. But he's asking you to consider Will your account include the way you welcomed your brothers and sisters who disagreed with you on the non-essentials? It's so easy to get along with those who agree with you on everything. But what distinguishes, or should I say, what ought to distinguish the church from other groups and clubs out there in the world, 
but should make the world look on us in wonder is how we love one another, just like Christ loved us. That's what makes the difference in the church. As you let the love that you have received from Christ flow through you to your brothers and sisters. It's important to realize that doesn't mean that you hold your convictions lightly or that you don't strive with everything you have to please God in the Christian life. But it does mean that part of that striving to please God includes welcoming your brothers and sisters who may have different convictions on certain non-essential matters. That's part of pleasing God, is loving those who please God in different ways. There's an anonymous poem that goes like this. Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think, eat what I eat and drink what I drink, look as I look, do always as I do, then and only then will I fellowship with you. Perhaps that was the attitude of some in the church in Rome before they received this letter from Paul. It would have been so easy to just break up the church in Rome into a couple different congregations. Some of the brothers could have gone off and started the church of the carnivores and others the church of the vegetarians. That's not what Paul, what the scriptures, the word of God said the solution was. Paul said that should not be our attitude towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul said that in fact we ought to love and welcome and accept because there is only one Lord Jesus Christ and one church. And in fact, as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, we all come to share one table to break one bread and to share one cup. And it is a picture of the unity we have as one church in our one Lord Jesus Christ. And so let us welcome one another, not to quarrel, but to build one another up in Christ's one church. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you this morning for your word, which teaches us to love one another just as you have loved us and to apply that even when we have different convictions of how we might best please you. We do pray, Lord, that you would grant us wisdom to understand how to live lives that would be most pleasing to you. But also, when we have different convictions, Lord, show us how we might welcome, how we might love one another, accepting those who have different convictions from us. Lord, help us even now to demonstrate that in action as we come together now to share together of this one table, this one bread, and this one cup. 
where we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.